Welcome to First Floor Corner Store, a podcast about building and strengthening community in the built environment. I recently visited Washington, D.C. and was lucky enough to spend some time with Cindy Brown, a longtime staff member at Smithsonian Gardens. As the manager of education and collections management, Cindy has been involved in a wide array of community engagement efforts and educational programming in the nation's capital. Put simply, I would say that Cindy believes wholeheartedly in the power of green space. She has worked diligently in overcoming the obstacles associated with managing public gardens and living collections, and has helped more people of all ages and backgrounds feel more at home in a horticultural landscape. She was generous with her time and energy, and shared with me some of the challenges and rewards of working with volunteers, greening the city, and incorporating Smithsonian Gardens into more people's lives. One of my first questions is just how you ended up here. I know you have a background in horticulture. Oh, at Smithsonian? Yeah. Oh, um, my degree actually is in gerontology. And I didn't go into it. I got married and all that love stuff. And <laughs> then when, I, when we moved here and it was expensive, I decided to go back. And I, I really love gardening. Always have. Always will. So I just started to do it for fun, and one thing led to the other, and I um, started at a public garden over in Virginia and got into the education part of it. So I was dual, a horticulturist and education. And the education, which I'm really glad I did because it gets very hard to bend when you get older <laughs> for the knees. And so they had a position, and it was wonderful because this position although I'd still rather, I like being out in the garden a lot. Um, this position combines all the different loves. You get to teach people and work with people um, so they understand the importance of green spaces. Mm -hmm. And uh, I am an old hippie, and I really <laughs> always wanted to save the world. But I learned a long time ago that you can't do it by beating people over the head. You have to show how it matters to them. So I get to educate them on the things that they love, pretty things. And if you can educate them on pretty things and how to make their lives prettier, all of a sudden they start paying closer attention to right. um, the things that I really care about. Um, and maybe they'll make the world a little bit better. Right. So that's, I got, it was a long way to get here through education, but the position opened, I applied, and um, the old hippie now is helping people out by pointing out how beautiful green spaces are and what a difference it makes. Yeah, it's so. a huge difference. So kind mm -hmm. of this idea of stewardship, inspiring people mm -hmm. to be stewards of green spaces because they know enough to care or yeah. they feel invested in it. In and then way. they watch bugs and, you know, you can tell the kids, oh, don't squish that one because, you know, they're helping us out. And um, it, it, it is stewardship. It right. is all about caring for something beyond yourself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So your title here at Smithsonian Gardens is you're the education and horticulture manager? Yeah, it's a weird, but really I, I'm over a manager of education and collections management. Okay. So I have collections managers to be able to oversee the living collection because we have orchids and and trees, uh, a major collection for orchids of 8,000 orchids. Oh, wow. Um, it's big. 
and then we have the archives and artifacts. I also oversee social media, which is just makes me laugh because I don't do any social media. <laughs> I do email. Yeah, um, but that's I'm probably a enough. very good person. Yes, <laughs> I just started Instagram. Um, that's and fun. Instagram is fun. Instagram is fun if you take the time. I have noticed a big difference for the like your generation. You're used to carrying your phone around with you. It, it kills me. I don't want to care anything with me. That's probably it, better, honestly. I don't know. We're on our phones way too much. I don't know. That bothers <laughs> me. But, yeah, yeah, it's a whole thing I have to learn. Uh, and volunteers, because part of building community, to me, is building volunteers. Mm. Volunteers aren't here just to help out with the, the logistical things. They're here because they then represent you out in the community. And in the more volunteers that you have, if they're productive, um, the more community building that you can do in a public garden as well. Right. Mm -hmm. So thinking about volunteers, because I think volunteers bring so much to any organization. Mm -hmm. Like I mentioned, I'm, I'm interning this summer as a research assistant um, for a nonprofit that really runs on volunteers. And mm -hmm. so it's this, I don't want to call it a double-edged sword, but you have such a wide array of people who care mm -hmm. about the organization, but then you're kind of also at the mercy of those people's schedules, and mm -hmm. sometimes things fall through at the last mm -hmm. minute. I mean, what has your experience been with volunteers as such a critical part of community building? That's exactly it. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> because it takes a lot of investment to work with volunteers. It takes a lot of investment from the staff to be able to work with volunteers. And they have to learn the benefits, all of a sudden, it's just not one person that they're working with. That one person will bring in another person and another person. The drawback is it does take a lot of time to work with volunteers. Mm -hmm. uh, and every volunteer comes with his or her own agenda. They're all here for a reason, whether it's just to be social or because they want to see something different in the area that they're working in. Uh, you have to from the very beginning you have to have them understand yes we value your opinion we want you to work with us but just like any staff member it, it it's um it's a community that makes the decision and it goes back to the community again so i can suggest something to our director and even though i'm staff and high up there it still takes the whole community for her to be able to make the decision. Right. And a volunteer doesn't always get that. That's the hardest thing, I think, working with a volunteer. They come in for one reason and realize that's really not what was written in their position description. Because mm -hmm. we do write position descriptions. Oh, yeah. On the other hand, volunteers can give you so much. I've worked with some of the best in the world for mines. Mm -hmm. I, and some volunteers are better at being a volunteer. And this one <laughs> gentleman, he was fabulous, Dallas Peck. And I was taking care of the kitchen garden, and I, I've been gardening for quite a while. But he was giving me advice, and I kept on saying, wow, okay, that's very good. And finally, my director at the time had to come out and said, do you have any idea who he is? I said, no. And... Um, he was the director of USGS, the United States Geological oh Survey. <laughs> and he was working with me. I don't know how he bit his tongue so many times, mm -hmm. but that's what a good volunteer should do. Mm -hmm. You offer suggestions. 
you realize that the job may not be what you want it to be but and if it isn't then you then you leave on good terms Mm -hmm. and do that but they can make all the difference in the world because they're a voice where you cannot, where you're not. Right. You know, so and I in a place them. In a place like Washington, D.C., so I, I'm from the Northeast and I have family in Virginia, so I periodically have come down to this part of the country, mm-hmm. but it's, it's really amazing. I mean, just in my short walk over here, th- we're in the middle of so many different amazing things happening. Mm-hmm. And I suppose you could say that for any city, but I just, there must be so many brilliant connected people in this space who are also volunteering in their free time or getting involved in other things that fall outside of their own job description. But, Mm -hmm. you know, when you realize how much energy and how many brilliant, talented, committed individuals are probably in on this hallway or in, Mm -hmm. you know, in this complex. Boy, that's true because we have more PhD holders in our volunteer core than we do on staff. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's kind of wild. And that neat, but I that <laughs> may be I think a volunteer is a special person. They're lifelong learners, of course, because they want to keep on learning. Mm-hmm. That's what draws them in. And because they're lifelong learners, they want to give back or they want to continue their lifespan in education or whatever else they're volunteering mm-hmm. in. So in an area like this where you have so many people that Type A's, lifelong learners, whatever, I think you do have a lot more than normal. And right before we got started with the interview, we were talking about programming for high school students Mm -hmm. around the idea of storytelling and oral histories. And Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about, you know, the community of volunteers who maybe are highly educated, very motivated, have a ton of access to resources to to be here in Mm -hmm. their free time. How do you address other populations or other communities like high school students who need to graduate or need to pass their Mm -hmm. tests. I mean, how do you take the same mission and kind of, Mm -hmm. you have to make them understand what it, what, how they benefit from it. And the biggest thing that has worked so far is, you know, it looks really good on your resume to say (laughs) that you have done something with the Smithsonian. So that is a draw. Right. Because we might, understand that you know this is a cool field you're going to get a lot out of this program whatever it is but the draw may just be I'll give you for instance uh, we worked with natural history on a program called yes youth engagement through science so those are high school students that we would bring into um, our business they worked in the greenhouse for us and they were volunteers they did get a stipend to be able to help pay for their uh, metro cards and stuff mm-hmm. because most of them came from underprivileged homes. Um, but you could tell they did their homework and they knew why they wanted to participate in this volunteer program because they were applying for college. Yeah. And what looked great on their resume for college? They were a volunteer at the Smithsonian for right one or two years so just like I said adults you want they want to either save money or make the world pretty their own space pretty I should say so with high school students I think to nab them with something that is foremost in their minds and then ease the other stuff in to be able to do yeah um 
another experience that I really enjoyed working with high school students, similar, um, a community garden. It's um, on 7th Street, not too far. 7th and Gerard, it's, it's up the road. Um, they have a program where they're bringing in interns, high school interns, to learn how to do urban agriculture. Hmm. Some of them were very interested, but that stipend really helped again with, with bringing them in. But they, when we went in to work with them, we were trying to get them to understand what that garden, where they were, meant to the community that was around them. So we brought in some of the communities, some of the residents, and this is very definitely lower income residents, and they got to interview those community members. Oh, wow. And for the first time, they understood how important that garden where they were interned was to their community, how the community looked at that space, what they really wanted out of that space, and how they could work with the um, uh, purveyors of the garden to be able to get what they wanted. Right. Because those gardeners came in with a whole different idea too, thinking they were going to teach these people how to garden. Mm -hmm. Those people already knew how to garden. They just needed a space to garden. Right. Mm -hmm. There's so many different layers to who's involved and what everyone wants from the experience and what mm -hmm. everyone has access to. It's kind of remarkable. I mean, it makes me think a lot about landscape architecture, mostly because that's kind of where my head has been for the last couple of years as a student. But you invite people into a community to do these massive projects, and you you really have to be committed to a, an extensive, genuine, thorough evaluation of yeah. what everyone is after and what everyone is hoping for when they think about how this space could be mm -hmm. better or designed in a different way and, mm -hmm. and it is I mean that as an experience for high schoolers I feel like would be pretty mind blowing yeah to even think beyond themselves I mean they're not babies they understand there's a world beyond them but to really understand there's a world beyond them mm -hmm. and that's where we are very lucky because we have a great internship program here, here and so many of the students that we get as interns have figured that out that there is such a great world out there beyond them. Uh, they're more mature than what some of the other students may be, mm -hmm. or at least they just had this revolution. I don't know what it is, right. but I really enjoy working with them because they really have figured out. The more experiences that they can get, the better off they'll be in the long run in their profession. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I mean, do you see those high schoolers or those interns back? The interns, yes, yeah. definitely. Most of our interns are college. Uh, um, you should apply next I year. I should. For, I'll introduce you to the Art Landscape Architect. <laughs> I um, love that. Um, but high schoolers, the ones that I've met so far, don't have that same burn, that same desire, and it could be just the ones that we've received as interns working through this YES program? Mm -hmm. I don't know. So I'm still trying to figure that yeah. one out because I, I've seen other college students that come in with a resume that they've done stuff back in high school. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it didn't sink in until they got to college and they were out on their own. Right. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. And that program you're talking about, the YES program, how did, how did recruitment happen for that? Was it it was, an application, it was an application, and then we did interview them because uh, we wanted to make sure that we were hitting the um, population that we wanted to. It was mostly for women, 
that were trying to get into science mm -hmm. or thought that they wanted to get into science careers and this gave them an avenue to show oh, how yeah. wide science really was that went beyond medicine because when you interviewed the students the first thing they would say is I really want to be a doctor well that's not the science that we are working with we're working with natural science mm -hmm. and practical science um, so it was it was interesting it was yeah. really interesting to talk to them I didn't do it this year, but right. I'd like to start it back up again. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I, I've noticed, it seems like the green industry is really taking off. I mean, in terms of how many people are being employed full-time to mm -hmm. be urban arborists and to mm -hmm. be taking care of, you know, grounds maintenance. And maybe I just wasn't aware of it before I went back to grad school, but I, I feel like there's real opportunity and, and those skills and mm -hmm. that knowledge is actually very valuable in a job mm -hmm. market. Um, and you never know what's going to happen to the job market, but no. <laughs> I, I know a lot of, you know, I heard about programs in Chicago and Philadelphia that are, are really focusing heavily on training folks to have those skills because they're marketable skills because mm -hmm. more and more cities are um, prioritizing green space and therefore they need people to maintain and look after the green space. So, I mean, do you feel like there's any kind of trend in either students being interested in those fields or that kind of knowledge or just witnessing mm -hmm. job opportunities that are in line with this yeah. world? Yeah, a little bit different experience. Yeah, I've been in the horticulture world over 20 years and uh, we have uh, a public uh, professionals, um, what do you call it, a professional society, I guess that's what you call it. Um, we have noticed a decline in horticulture and horticulture mm -hmm. students and horticulture programs. They're being rolled back into uh, plant science or botany, that type thing. We're getting more and more students that are in environmental studies as interns than we are as horticulture hmm. uh, uh, students. Landscape architecture, yes, we don't have a problem getting landscape uh, landscape architecture students, but definitely straight horticulture students. And there's a real movement, especially in nurseries where uh, big greenhouses are growing what needs to be grown to train people, to get people interested in that field. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm seeing a little bit of a decline in horticulture more students interested in saving the world again which right. is the old hippie thing yeah. <laughs> um, but not and this could be lack of knowledge about horticulture you know they understand they're they it's environmental studies that's what's taught in high school uh, and it's continuing into college so maybe they I didn't know there was this thing as horticulture uh, mm -hmm. when I got into school I would have done it um, but that could be what it is. We are not the highest paid uh, people, mm -hmm. which a whole generation, I think, was trying to get into the highest paying jobs that you possibly could when you graduate, for a good reason. You need to pay off the student loans. Right. Horticulture, it would take you a while mm -hmm. to be able to do it. Uh, we are very lucky at the Smithsonian that we make a living wage. Other places, not so much. Yeah. And truly, why do you want to go for a school for four years to learn how to do horticulture when you can learn a lot of it on the job? I mean, I have a background in soil science and uh, um, uh, botany and all this other stuff, but what makes me a good horticulturist, yes, that background really does help, but hands-on is really important too. Mm -hmm. So if you get into environmental studies, learn about how it works with the community and, and on the world picture and then 
get into a good internship that you can learn right. all that hands-on stuff. Yeah. So I'm not discouraged. I just I love horticulture. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. I love plants. It's important. Yeah. And it's funny. I mean, I I can speak from some really what feels like very relevant experience, which is that I did a, a year in a grad program for landscape architecture, mm-hmm. and then the first job I had after like you know for the summertime. I was an intern at the Smith College Botanic Garden, and that was when so many things clicked for me in terms of plant identification. I mean, mm-hmm. we I took a whole course, a semester-long course on, you know, woody shrubs and trees. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I mean, not that none of it stuck with me, but it was really pruning trees and getting your hands dirty and, and, and getting up close to the plants was what made mm-hmm. me remember them and I, I understand mm-hmm. what they brought to a landscape. So the hands-on piece makes a lot of sense. And at the same time, I remember being very moved by, you know, the many facets of a job in horticulture, but I, yeah. I, I sometimes struggle to make that connection back to a larger context, the whole kind of saving the world idea. So maybe that's just my, me being a, a naive student and wanting to make a bigger impact than maybe mm-hmm. is possible, but I I loved the work so much, it was important to me to be outside and, and be using my body and everything, but sometimes I was thinking, you know, what did I do today? I, I mowed the lawn and I pruned some trees and I weeded and, you know, it was, it was kind of mm-hmm. this oscillating experience of being really into the work, but wondering how it was getting back to a larger community. Another story for you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, where I used to work at Green Spring Gardens, it's, it's over in Virginia and it's not too far from the Pentagon. Okay, one beautiful sunny morning, I'm driving to work and hear about a plane that crashes into World Trade Center. Mm-hmm. Find out it was what really happened. Not only did our public garden, but all public gardens talk about this. What uh, increase in attendance, I'm going to cry, we had after 9 11. Because mm-hmm. so many people needed to go someplace green, to and green really does heal. I mean, we have the science now. Yeah, I just had a professor from University of Washington, a social scientist, that is getting the quantitative facts for us. It's not just qualitative anymore, it's quantitative. quantitative. And so she, they have statistics to show how healthy green spaces are. Yeah. Without public gardens, well, you would have golf courses. Right. But without, I'm sorry, that was negative. Golf courses are good for golfing people. Right, that's um, true. <laughs> <laughs> but without public gardens and without the uh, uh, this desire to keep these green spaces in the urban areas in, in ways that the public can really use them. Mm-hmm. An urban farm is terrific, but how many people are going to go on that urban farm to really uh, enjoy what's, what's going on? We need that. Public gardens, green spaces are healing spaces. And that's yeah. the difference you can make in the world. That's very true. Mm-hmm. I thank you for sharing that mm-hmm. story. I mean, that makes all the sense in the world. Mm-hmm. We even have a program now that I'm, it, public gardens do. We haven't started it here. They have in the museums. They call it Mornings at the Museums. I think that's the name. And it's inviting uh, families with accessibility needs. Um, Asperger's, uh, um, even Alzheimer's, uh, uh, that may be overwhelmed in a museum area. They have time set aside for these uh, 
uh, audiences, these populations, to be able to come in to experience a museum without all the hubbub or oh, wow. have special interpreters there that can really help them out. Public gardens are doing it too because if you're overwhelmed at any time in a museum, you can come out to that green space to decompress, to do whatever you need mm -hmm. to do. And it's another very good reason. So horticulture, you may be doing the lawn mowing, but without you doing the lawn mowing, it wouldn't be there for all these right. reasons. That's so true. That's so true. And I, I wonder too, I mean, I always think about accessibility at maybe its broadest scale and just thinking, how do we make sure that everyone feels able and welcome to enjoy a space? And I wonder sometimes, even public gardens sometimes, I think can be a little intimidating, mm -hmm. either because of the history of, mm -hmm. of gardens in, in the United States and all over the world that were, they kind of originated in this privilege mm -hmm. and this monetary support of these like expansive gardens and they were they were yeah. something to enjoy and they they were not for everyone they were to collect plants well, and to yeah, keep those safe yeah and to, and to yeah. perpetuate science and research mm -hmm. and everything and so i wonder do you have any insight on how to ensure that everyone feels welcome in a space that is meant for everyone but maybe some folks get lost that is the, the biggest thing that we're working on the American Public Garden Association or professional association how do we make it totally accessible um, how are our spaces used how are we going to be a part of the urban area so that there's space for these plants which we're truly saving plants that have gone extinct in the wild oh, wow. um, so that is part of many uh, botanical gardens missions is to save those plants how do we make those spaces um, enticing inviting just like you're saying so that's a number of questions so I don't have a total answer mm -hmm. I have good examples of what's worked um, there are in urban areas Chicago for one uh, the gardens are there's the lorry gardens inside of the larger public garden that is or public space which I can't remember with the giant bean I can't remember what the space is, is called Millennium Park Millennium Park thank yeah. you so the botanical garden is within this bigger park this bigger park has space for skateboarding for dogs for picnicking for all the other things that should be done in a green space that we don't allow yeah. <laughs> in the botanic. I just uh, was being interviewed by these little kids who are adorable up in New York City um, at the Cooper Hewitt, another one of our oh, museums. Sure. And they said, if we, because I was sharing all these pictures, if we come down, can we roll around in all that grass in the park there? I said, no. Nope. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> you cannot. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's the difference between an educator that wants all the space open and the grounds maintenance that says you have everybody rolling around the garden it's not going to be a garden right. anymore <laughs> so yeah. uh, they were surprised by that so we've got to figure out how we set aside the space that can be multi-use and really make build the community and and answer all these dog people rolling around questions <laughs> and how we still keep those plants safe in mm -hmm. different areas how we have spaces for weddings all public not all of them, a lot of public gardens now need more revenue because mm -hmm. the privileged are not uh, um, uh, as readily accessible for funds as what it used to be 
no more Rockefeller. Well, they are, but they don't always give to us. Right. Um, <laughs> I'm sure of that. <laughs> but so weddings are very important to earn money. Well, you don't want to have weddings in the garden space, even though it's gorgeous, mm-hmm. because every bride wants different color flowers. Um, and that's true. Too. That's kind of, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I never thought about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so how do we make these spaces work for everybody? That's a really good question. How do we get people to understand that that green space that kind of looks put-offish, you could still come down and hang out in? Um, how do you, uh, great garden down in Florida, fruit and nut, Spice Park, Fruit and Spice Park, Fruit Nut Spice Park, I think that's what it is, right outside of Miami. All these wonderful fruit trees, mangoes mm. and lychees, all these things oh, that they're wow. growing. How do you get people not to steal those things? <laughs> because the United States has this idea, and I've been called on it a couple times, that's a public garden, does not mean it's a public space, does not mean you can come and forage in that public garden. Right. How do you keep all your mangoes from disappearing? They came up with some great ideas. Yeah, like what? I'm so they curious. have a general store, which is what they sell their candy and knickknacks and stuff in. They're selling the ripe fruit in there. A oh, couple yeah. times a year, they have community days. They invite the whole community, all the different diverse cultural uh, uh, societies to come in to show how they use the different fruits and do education amongst their citizens so that they you have the mirrors that you're looking at instead of windows that you're looking through people um, to be able to see how uh, their cultures use that fruit they offer food for sale in the garden or that time of year those community days everything's free from what they pick Mm -hmm. because it's horrible. I used to have this giant chestnut tree and I would see people come and bang on the branches to get the chestnuts to fall down. In your home? No, this was at the public garden. (laughs) And they'd bang on it and they would do damage to the tree. They would just have to wait for us to harvest them. We would make them available and then they could take them and and do that. So it is about education. It is about being welcoming and it is about answering the uh, needs uh, in a way that is good for both people or both communities so there are some very positive things happening there are some people that just never want a dog in the garden or never want somebody to roll around in the green space and we've got to address that right so yeah and, and again you wonder how to address all the needs of all the people who either are stakeholders or have, are just yeah. even sentimental about it. You know, there's, yeah. I noticed when I was working at the Botanic Garden um, at Smith, neighbors would come and, and be asking questions and, and had real ownership over the space. Yes. They wanted to know what tree was that. They wanted to know if a tree was coming down. They wanted to know, yes. you know, everything. Yeah. So in some ways that's a really positive result of, of stewardship and community investment, but also, um, yeah, you want to try to meet the needs of as many folks as you can, I guess. Yeah, because yeah, they can work against you where they're used to using the garden in one way and they see another community coming in trying to use it in a totally different way uh, that didn't jive with what how they wanted to use it. It was really interesting at the other garden. We did have a more culturally diverse neighborhood and uh, Ethiopian cultures... Evidently, between the time that they get married, and this is still a Christian uh, 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 ceremony, I don't know anything about 
uh, any other ceremony. But if they get married in the church in the morning and then they have a reception in the evening wherever they're doing it, that space in between is supposed to be spent outside celebrating, eating, having music, everything else. So they found our public garden and thought it was a great place to be able to do this. Mm -hmm. Well, a whole wedding party can't move into a small public garden and and use the space that way because there's so many other people trying to use the right. space. So it's a great way to do it. How do you answer that? And you have a big open area that the soccer players want to play in and they want to fly the kites because it's a big open area but not open enough that it doesn't get caught in that prized ginkgo tree. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it, 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 you just have to do the best that you can. Yeah. And it's reminding me, I'm doing this work this summer for a housing nonprofit, and we're talking a lot about home ownership and how it's become a more difficult challenge for mm -hmm. people over yeah. the last 10, 15, 20 years to become homeowners. Yeah. And when we have interviewed people asking what they dream about when they dream about owning a home, a lot mm -hmm. of it has to do with the landscape and yeah. the space and you know they want something where it feels like there's community but they also want privacy and you know we we have so many needs when it comes to space and and rightly so i think it's so important to really identify how you'd like to spend time in a space mm -hmm. but i think it spills over into the idea of public gardens because people want public and private spaces within public gardens they want to be able to go there and enjoy and have people be around them but they also want a very specific experience so it's like this whole multifaceted wish that every single person is bringing to these spaces and it's like how do we make sense of all of it and how do we lots of charrettes yeah <laughs> <laughs> really an charrettes answer. are the answer to everything maybe okay that's it thanks so much for listening and stay tuned for another episode of first floor corner store <laughs>